Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Gay, and I'll be reading today's edition of the Cape Cod Times for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. We'll start with the weather. Today, it's going to be mostly sunny and beautiful with high temperature 75 degrees. Tonight, you can expect it to be clear, low temperatures, a cool 62. Tomorrow, we'll have some sun. It'll be breezy in the afternoon with high 76, low temperature 69. Friday, It'll be breezy and humid with a shower and thunderstorm, high 78, low 67. On Saturday, there'll be some sun with a shower in places. It'll be a little humid, temperature 67, 77, low 64. And on Sunday, it should be nice with periods of cloud and sunshine, high temperature 80, low 64. The sun rose this morning at 5.36 a.m. and it will set at 7.58 p.m., That's 14 hours and 22 minutes of daylight. And the lottery numbers for the numbers game for Tuesday, August 1st, the midday drawing, 8912. That's 8912 for the midday drawing for Tuesday, August 1st. And for the evening drawing, the numbers are 2538. That's 2538 evening drawing for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Our first story this morning is from Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times. The lifeblood of the maritime community. The state awards $5.65 million for seven dredge projects. Six commercial fishing boats, three search and rescue vessels, and another 150 or so boats are tucked into the public and private docks in Mooring Field in Allen Harbor. It's a small Cape Harbor, relatively speaking, with a short channel that doglegs to the sea. But if that channel isn't dredged every year, it would close off access to the ocean for the commercial and residential boaters. So it was welcome news to Harwich and five other Cape towns when the state announced Thursday $5.65 million in grants for seven dredge projects. You want to talk about the economy and tourism and people coming for the beaches? Harwich Harbor Master John Rendon said, if we didn't have support from the state, it would be difficult to keep our channels open. Harwich received $50,000 to dredge 8,000 cubic yards of sand. It will open up navigation channels, and the sand will be used to replenish town beaches. It's something all Cape Towns need to do because of the wind and water currents that are constantly moving sand around the peninsula. Chatham received the most in grant money, a million dollars, for improvements at the Bridge Street waterfront, and another $500,000 to dredge Stage Harbor. The harbor has experienced severe and recurrent shoaling over the last few years, according to Shannon Neely, town manager, Jill Smith's spokesperson. Money from the State Executive Office of Economic Development, which funds the dredge program, has allowed for repeated dredging of Stage Harbor. Without that dredging, boating would come to a standstill for many, according to Theodore Keon, the Director of Coastal Resources in Maintaining navigation channels is literally maintaining the lifeblood of the maritime community, Keon said especially if you have a large commercial fleet. But it's not just commercial fishermen who stand to benefit. A survey of business owners surrounding six harbors and four towns found harbors had a huge economic impact on the region. A 2020 survey by the Cape Cod Commission found employee compensation from the top 10 industries surrounding Provincetown Harbor, Sesuit Harbor in East Dennis, Stage Harbor and Aunt Lydia's Cove in Chatham, and Great Harbor and Inner Harbor in Falmouth was close to $257 million. 
The study has been used to justify the need for dredging and capital improvement funding. The Cape took the lion's share of the awards announced. The Seaport Economic Council awarded a total of $3.1 million in grants, and the Massachusetts Dredging Program awarded a total of $5 million in grants. The details are listed. Barnstable, $300,000 to dredge 17,000 cubic yards from Catuit Bay entrance and embayment channels. Harbor Master Brian Taylor said the sand would be used to replenish air on Deadneck or Sampson's Island, both important barriers that protect the bay from coastal storms. Chatham, $1 million from the Seaport Economic Council on Bridge Street waterfront improvements. Those improvements will include a shellfish upwelling facility and Americans with Disabilities Act accessible floats for public boating. Chatham, $500,000 to dredge 28,000 cubic yards from Stage Harbor, install a concrete floating dock, and build a shellfish lab and propagation facility. East Town and Orleans. The towns received $1.3 million to dredge 24,000 cubic yards from Rock Harbor Channel. The harbor hosts two public boat ramps, about 100 dockage slips, and one of the largest sport fishing fleets in Massachusetts. The harbor's offloading infrastructure serves about 30 commercial fishing vessels. Those vessels brought in more than $4 million in commercial landings in Orleans and East Ham in 2021. Harwich, $50,000 to dredge Allen Harbor. More than $4.6 million in commercial catch was landed in Harwich in 2020. Wellfleet, a $2.5 million grant will be used to dredge 100,000 cubic yards of material from the South Anchorage in Wellfleet Harbor. Dredging will restore all tide access to the area for up to 315 commercial and recreational vessels and improve conditions for shellfish propagation. Wellfleet was the second most productive shellfishing port in the state in 2021. It supports 90 shellfish growers, 265 acres of aquaculture, and brings in an estimated $8 million in commercial landings. Our next story is by Walker Armstrong. Lifeline to the Islands, $50 million bond boost for Steamship Authority from the Cape Cod Times USA Network. In finalizing the fiscal 2024 state budget Monday, the state legislature raised the bond borrowing limit for the Woods Hole, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket Steamship Authority to $150 million. The limit got a $50 million boost, a move that officials say could go a long way in helping the agency complete major capital projects, such as acquiring another vessel for its aging Along with purchasing and converting another vessel for ferry use, electrification and constructing the new Woods Hole Terminal are vital projects the authority needs to complete, said State Senator Julian Sear, Democrat Truro, who filed the bill responsible for raising the bond limit. As a steamship authority is the lifeline to the islands, this helps safeguard each of the islands' economic livelihoods, Sear said, hence why we arrived at increasing the bond limit. The House voted to approve the budget earlier on Monday and then sent it to the Senate, which sent it to Governor Healy's office. Healy is expected to sign the budget within 10 days. The Steamship Authority purchased three vessels in 2022. The Steamship Authority purchased three identical vessels from Marine Services Company Hornbeck Offshore Services with the ultimate aim to upgrade and homogenize its fleet, whose vessels have an average age of 34 years old. Sears said a fleet of identical vessels helps out with maintenance costs and operational processes. Part of the real challenge with the Steamship Authority's operations and its fleet is that each of the boats are unique and different, he said. If you have a cancellation, especially on the freight boats, and you have to rebook someone on another boat, the configuration is different. It's a pretty intricate jigsaw. 
The bond limit was last raised in 2014 from $75 million to $100 million. With terminals in Hyannis and Woods Hole, the Steamship Authority is a ferry service providing trips to and from the Cape and Islands for passengers as well as vehicles, cars to large freight-carrying trucks. Passenger ridership was around 2.9 million in 2022, according to a recent annual report. The Massachusetts legislature created the Steamship Authority in 1960 to provide for adequate transportations of persons and necessaries of life for the islands of Nantucket and Martha's Vineyards. The authority operates mainly from money from its fare box, which includes passenger and vehicle ticket sales, with no money coming directly from the state. Steamship Authority General Manager Robert Davis said more money will continue to be needed and other methods of funding, such as federal grants, are being sought out as well. Without the bond increase, he said, the authority would not have been able to even consider buying a fourth vessel. We appreciate all the attention that the delegation gave to this, David said in reference to the bond limit increase. It's been helpful to have people up at the State House championing it for us. And the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund helps family pay unexpected medical bill by Rashik Tabasu Mujib. Families are struggling to make ends meet as rents soar on Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyards, and Nantucket, and the price for food and basic necessities keeps pace. Unexpected events can put more strain on families. A family of three living on one of the islands received a bill from a health care provider for payment for the uninsured portion of a necessary procedure for the mom. Briefly out of work and faced with that medical bill, she asked for help. With the help of the needy fund, she was able to stabilize her family's life without falling into debt. The nonprofit Cape Cod Times Needy Fund has provided emergency financial assistance to thousands of Cape Codders and Islanders since 1936. That assistance is made possible because of the continued generosity of neighbors helping neighbors. The Needy Fund provides short-term emergency assistance to Cape and Islands residents so that they can continue to go to work and or stay in their People in need submit their requests for help to the Needy Fund, which in turn pays for the goods or services, a medical bill for example, through a voucher system. No cash is given to Needy Fund recipients. On July 2nd, the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund kicked off its summer fundraising appeal with the goal of raising $225,000 between now and August 25th. Donations, which are tax-deductible, may be made online at needyfund.org. Checks payable to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund should be mailed to Cape Cod Times Needy Fund, P.O. Box 36, Hyannis, Mass., 02601. Those needing assistance may contact the Needy Fund at 508-778-5661 or 800-422-144. Questions can be emailed to needyfund to info at needyfund.org. The Needy Fund is also available on Facebook and Twitter. Our next story is from Hyannis. Cape Cod Riders Conference convenes in Hyannis by Gwen Fress. The Cape Cod Riders Center will host its annual conference from Thursday through Sunday as more than 100 attendees from all parts of the country will convene at the resort and conference center in Hyannis. We're meeting in person again, Center President Barbara Eastruna said. From 2020 through 2022, COVID-19 restrictions meant that the center held no on-site annual The schedule for the convention, which includes two and a half days of courses that focused on the fast-changing world of publishing and its latest trends, will have classes such as selling on Amazon, screenwriting, self-publishing, and genre bending. 
The conference format features individual speakers, an agent panel, and participation by instructors and mentors with a track record of literary expertise. A major focus is the opportunity for attendees to meet with instructors and other writers for a one-on-one -on -one manuscript mentoring session. The keynote speaker on Saturday is the American nonfiction author Verlin Klinkenborg, a member of the editorial board at the New York Times from 1997 to 2013, who now teaches at Yale University. Author and center member Ray Anderson of Hingham, who has attended the annual conferences for more than a decade, said that the in-person ingredient offers a unique opportunity for aspiring for Anderson, the networking aspect with colleagues and consultants has been invaluable. It's how he learned the ins and outs of the trade, taking advantage of the opportunity to share preliminary manuscripts for each of us, three thriller novels with on-site mentors and trade expertise with other writers. A later-in-life writing career for former businessman Kevin Simmons turned into the successful publication of five novels beginning in 2012. Becoming part of the Cape Cod Center changed my writing life, said Simmons, who went on to serve as board member. And Conference participation, he said, offers a real opportunity to learn the craft. It was the genesis of my writing, Simmons said, with such a wide area of expertise on site. He added that there are people there who are going to. The many changes taking place in the publishing world have added new facets to conference programs. One major change is the growing diversity in publishing options that have transformed the industry, opening up new routes for aspiring authors to get their work out there. The big five traditional publishing houses now share the publishing stage with a host of mid-sized publishing groups that offer a variety of ways to go about making a book available to the public in digital or print format. In addition, book publishing services for self-published authors have continued to explode, adding a whole new layer to the publishing industry. According to Struna, over the past few years, the self-publishing option has gotten a better image as writers become knowledgeable about locating services that can produce a more professional effort in the finish. After starting out with a small publisher, Struna herself, the author of five books of fiction and nonfiction, has gravitated to publishing her own books. I wanted to own all my work, she said, rather than contracting with a publishing service. She manages the process herself, working with a longtime editor, formatter, cover designer, and proofreader. Like it or not, we're going to have to understand and negotiate with the increasing dominance of AI, according to Nancy Rubin-Stewart, executive director of the center since 2011. Stewart, who has authored eight books since 1981 with mainstream publishers, said the center seeks to remain current with the fast-moving changes in the publishing industry and will continue to assess the major impact of today's technological advances that loom over all creative work. Both Stewart and Struna note, the similar issues surfacing in the ongoing Hollywood writer's strike. It's going to become a new battle for publishers, Stewart. The 60th annual Cape Cod Writers' Conference is held Thursday through Sunday, August 3rd through 6th, at the Resort and Conference Center, 35 Scudder Avenue, Hyannis. For more information, visit capecodwriterscenter.org slash conference dash two. This is a reading of Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023 edition. Cape Cod Times. From the Associated Press, Blue Blood from Horseshoe Crabs Prized, Medical Research, Bird Populations Rely on the Species by Patrick Whittle. Portland, Maine. The horseshoe crab has been scuttling in the ocean and tidal pools for more than 400 million years, playing a vital role in the East Coast ecosystem, along with being a prized item for fishing bait and medical 
Its blue blood is harvested for medical researchers and used by drug and medical device makers to test for dangerous impurities in vaccines, prosthetics, and intravenous drugs. The crabs are used by fishing crews as bait to catch eels and sea snails. And their eggs are a critical food for declining subspecies of BERT called the red knot, a rust-colored migratory shorebird listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. The competing interests have set up a clash among researchers, fishing crews, and environmentalists over new protections designed to keep more of the crabs in the environment. The animals are drained of some of their blood and returned to the shore, but many die from the bleeding, and a drive to create synthetic alternatives has yet to succeed in phasing out the crabs from use. Recent revisions to guidelines for handling the animals should keep more alive through the process, regulators say. The animals, not really true crabs, but rather more closely related to land-dwelling invertebrates, such as spiders and scorpions, are declining in some of their East Coast range. They were here before the dinosaurs, said Glenn Garvey, president of Ecological Research and Development Group, a Delaware-based nonprofit that advocates for horseshoe crab conservation. And they're having problems because the new kid on the block, us, haven't learned to appreciate the other. The harvest of horseshoe crabs has emerged as a critical issue for conservationists in recent years because of the red knot. These birds, which migrate some 19,000 miles round trip from South America to Canada and must stop to eat along the way, need stronger protection of horseshoe crabs to survive, said Bethany Kraft, Senior Director for Coastal Conservation with the Audubon Society. Kraft and other wildlife advocates say the fact the guidelines for handling crabs are voluntary and not mandatory leaves the red knot at risk. Making sure there's enough to fuel these birds on this massive, insanely long flight is just critical, Kraft said. There's very clear linkage between horseshoe crabs and the survival of the red knot in the coming decade. The horseshoe crabs are valuable because their blood can man be manufactured into limulus amniocytic lysate, or LAL, that is used to detect pathogens in indispensable medicines such as injectable antibiotics. The crabs are collected by fishermen by hand or via trawlers for use by biomedical, biomedical companies. Then their blood is separated and proteins within their white blood cells are processed. It takes dozens of the crabs to produce enough blood to fill a single glass tube with its blood, which contains immune cells sensitive to bacteria. There are only five federally licensed manufacturers on the East Coast that process horseshoe crab blood. The blood is often described by activist groups as worth $15,000 a quart, though some members of the industry say that figure is impossible to verify. Regulators estimate about 15% of the crabs die in the bleeding process. In 2021, that meant about 112,000 crabs died, said Caitlin Starks, a senior fishery management plan coordinator with the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. The bait fishery for horseshoe crabs, which are used to bait for eels and sea snails, killed more than six times that, she said. Still, the Fisheries Commission in May approved new best management practices for the biomedicals industry's harvesting and handling of the crabs. Those include minimizing exposure to sunlight and keeping crabs cool and most moist. The goal is to give the crabs that are bled a better chance of surviving and contributing to the ecosystem after they are released, she said. That's exactly what the new guidelines will do, said Nora Blair, quality operations manager with Charles Rivers Laboratory, one of the companies that manufactures LAL from horseshoe crab blood. Blair was a member of the working group that crafted the updated guidelines alongside other industry members, conservationists, fishery managers, fishermen, and others. Blair said the industry is working towards synthetic alternatives and outcome conservationists have been pushing for years. 
Lanza, a Switzerland-based company that is one of the LAL manufacturers, offers animal-free testing solution, and the company has touted it as a way to test for toxins while protecting natural resources, said Victoria Morgan, a spokesperson for the company. However, for now, the wild harvest of horseshoe crabs remains critically important to drug safety, Blair said. The critical role of horseshoe crab in the biopharmaceutical supply chain and coastal ecosystem makes their conservation imperative. The Atlantic horseshoe crab, the species harvested on the East Coast, ranges from the Gulf of Maine to Florida. The International Union for Conservation of Nature lists the species as being vulnerable based on a 2016 assessment. One of the most important ecosystems for horseshoe crabs is the Delaware Bay, an estuary of the Delaware River between Delaware and New Jersey. The bay is where the crabs breed and the red knots feed. The density of horseshoe crab eggs in the bay is nowhere near what it was in the 1990s, said Lawrence Niles, an independent wildlife biologist who once headed New Jersey's state endangered species program. Meanwhile, the population of the Rufa red knot, the threatened subspecies, has declined by 75 percent since the 1980s, according to the National Park Service. The birds need meaningful protection of horseshoe crab eggs to be able to recover, Niles said. He tracks the health of red knots and horseshoe crabs and has organized a group called Horseshoe Crab Recovery Coalition to advocate for conservation measures. Niles and volunteers he organizes have been counting the horseshoe crab eggs since the 1980s and tagging birds since the 1990s. In mid-June, as he was wrapping up this year's tracking in southern New Jersey, he described the eggs as good and consistent through the month. What we want is the harvest to stop, the killing to stop, and let the stock rebuild to its carrying capacity. The horseshoe crabs have been harvested for use as bait and medicine from Florida to Maine over the years, though the largest harvests are in Maryland, Delaware, Massachusetts, and Virginia. According to federal fishery statistics, the crabs were worth about $1.1 million in total at the docks in 2021. That figure is dwarfed by seafood species such as lobsters and scallops, which are routinely worth hundreds of millions of dollars. However, horseshoe crab fishers are dedicated stewards of a fishery that supplies a vital product, said George Topping, a Maryland fisherman. Everything you do in life comes from horseshoe crab blood. Vaccines, antibiotics, he said, the horseshoe crab stocks are healthy. And now from the Cape Cod Times USA Today Network, not a typical plover, rare bird from prairie seen on Craigville Beach by Eric Williams. Have you ever taken a wrong turn on a road trip and ended up hundreds of miles from home eating mole crabs on a strange beach? No, it's not the plot of The Hangover Part 4. It seems to be what happened to a mountain plover that recently landed in the Craigville Beach area, causing a sensation among birders. Why all the avian hoopla? Well, according to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Cape birders would usually have to go way over the bridges to see a mountain plover. Cornell describes the brownish bird this way. Nesting on high, dry plains of western North America, this species is a companion of classic prairie wildlife like bison, pronghorn, and prairie dog. Even out west, the bird is becoming harder to spot. Sadly, intensive conversion of prairies to agriculture and other uses has hit this species hard, with more than 80% of the population gone in the last half century, reports Cornell. Word of the mountain plover in Craigville Beach, Long Beach area began to make waves around July 20th, when Mark Faraday, science coordinator at the Mass Audubon Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary, got wind of it. He scrambled down there to get a look. This was pretty memorable for any birder who saw it, said Faraday, reached by phone. This was a life. 
For those not up to speed on birding lingo, a life bird or a lifer is a species that a birder has seen and identified in the wild for the very first time in their life, according to the sustainably website treehugger.com. According to the Massachusetts Avian Records Committee, the only previous documented sighting of a mountain plover in the state occurred in Chatham in 1916 by A.E. Crowell. Though a direct connection could not be found, it is possible that the credited Crowell may have been legendary bird carver Anthony Elmer Crowell of each. The 1916 mountain plover suffered the fate of becoming a mounted specimen, a relatively common practice in those days. According to the Massachusetts Avian Records Committee, it is in the collection of the Museum of Science in Boston. Figuring out how to, the current mountain plover got to Cape Cod and where it will go from here falls into the speculation category, said Faraday. He hypothesized that the wayward bird event might be a case of post-breeding dispersal. Mountain plovers usually nest in June and unsuccessful breeders can start to wander in July, said while Faraday thought the plover looked slightly disheveled on the beach, he said, it seemed to be eating pretty well, dining on mole crabs and insect larvae. Cape bird fans who aren't lucky enough to see the mountain plover in their backyard might want to start planning a spring 2024 trip to Carville, Colorado. That community boasts an annual mountain plover festival, which includes birding tours and a chuck wagon dinner. From the Associated Press, sweltering summer only halfway over from Seth Bornstein. At about summer's halfway point, the record-breaking heat and weather extremes are both unprecedented and unsurprising, hellish yet boring in some ways, scientists say. Killer heat, deadly floods, choking smoke from wildfires, and there's no relief in sight. Expect a hotter-than-normal August and September, American European Forecasters Centers. We are seeing unprecedented changes all over the world, said NASA climate scientist Gavin Schmidt. The heat waves that we're seeing in the U.S. and in Europe in China are demolishing records left, right, and center. This is not a surprise. Imperial College of London climate scientist Frederick Otto said examining what causes heat waves is boring in a way since it keeps happening. Yet she adds that it matters because it shows again just how much climate change plays a role in what we are currently experiencing. This story, these impacts are going to continue, Schmidt said. We're going to be seeing this pretty much this year and into next year with the natural El Nino warming of the Pacific, adding to the overwhelming influence of human-caused climate change, largely from the burning of coal, oil, and gas. Globally, June this year was the hottest June on record, and scientists say July has been so hot that even before the month was over, they could say it was the hottest month on record. But it's individual places where people live that the heat has struck around and killed. Phoenix, where the last day of June and each day of July has been at least 110 degrees, set records for the longest mega heat streak and the longest stretch when the temperature didn't go below 90 degrees at night. El Paso, Texas, had 44 days of 100-degree heat. Schools closed in Nueva Leon State in northern Mexico a month earlier than usual as temperatures reached 113 Beijing had its own record streak with at least 27 days of 95 degrees in July after a three-day streak of at least 104 in June. And the country set its all-time highest temperature on July 16th in remote Sabao Township with 126 degrees. Heat records fell all over southern Europe. Sardinia, Italy hit 117. Palermo in Sicily broke a record that goes back to 1791 by a whopping 3.6 degrees. Temperatures hit 115 degrees. In Spain reported nearly 1,000 excess deaths from the heat, mostly among the elderly, by mid-July. 
In Argentina, where it's midwinter, temperatures were above 89.6 degrees for four straight days in June and in the northern part of the county. One July night in Buenos Aires didn't get below 70. More than 10,000 people had to be evacuated from central Hunan province in China, where heavy rainfall caused at least 70 houses to collapse. In Yaiching, rain triggered a landslide that buried a construction site and killed at least one person. Australia's Queensland outback got 13 times its normal monthly July rain in just one day. Thousands of people were evacuated from Delhi and India as rains caused flash floods and landslides. Elsewhere in the country, at least 100 people were killed in the downpours. In the United States, sudden heavy rain killed people in Vermont, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania, with tragic stories of children washed away. Too little rain in Greece and Spain fed wildfires that proved difficult to fight. In the Canary Islands, a fire that caused 4,000 people to evacuate and others to wear face masks had 400 firefighters battling it. Hot and dry conditions caused about 160 wildfires to break out in Israel in early. But what really brought fires home happened in parts of Canada where few people. Rare far northern Quebec wildfires triggered nasty smoke that inflicted the world's dirtiest air on cities like New York and Washington, then switched to the Midwest. As of late July, more than 600 wildfires were out of control in Canada, a record 47,490 square miles burned, an area larger than the state of Pennsylvania or North Korea, and fire season isn't new. Water temperature in the Florida Keys and off the Everglades hit the high 90s with Manatee Bay breaking 100 degrees twice in what could be an unofficial world record for surface water temperature. The North Atlantic had hot spots that alarmed scientists. The world's oceans as a whole were the hottest ever in June and got even hotter in July. In Antarctica, sea ice smashed record low levels. Ocean temperatures take a long time to warm up and cool down, said University of Northern Illinois meteorology professor Victor Gensini, so it doesn't look good for the rest of the summer. We are favoring above-normal temperatures for the next three months, said a NOAA Climate Prediction Center meteorologist, Mats Rosencrantz. The only potential relief he sees is if a hurricane or a tropical storm moves through. As a reminder, this is the Cape Cod Times, Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023 edition. And now it's time for the obituaries. Our first obituary is Noel Philip Bonacci, Yarmouthport. Noel Philip Bonacci of Yarmouthport passed away peacefully with his wife Alice of 61 years by his side on July 28, 2023 at the age of 86. He was born in Kingston, New York and lived in New York State until he retired in 1995 when he and Alice moved to Cape Cod. Noel attended St. Joseph's School in Kingston High School. He received a bachelor's degree from Cornell University and a master's degree from SUNY Albany in public administration and completed course certification in alcohol and substance abuse counseling. Noel worked for New York State for 37 and a half years in various positions. Noel did 40 years of volunteer work, which included work with troubled youth at Parsons Child and Family Center, coach and manager of Little League and Babe Ruth Baseball Leagues in Colony, New York, and after moving to Cape Cod for 17 years, he packaged and delivers meals to seniors through the Cape and Islands Meals on Wheels program in Yarmouth, spending extra time with each person he encounters. As a member of Our Lady of Mercy Parish in Colony, he was a CCD teacher, church lector, church of its twinning program with the inner city parish and the head of its first parish council. After moving to Cape Cod, he attended St. Pius X Church. Besides his wife, Noel leaves many family members and friends and will be incredibly missed. 
Family and friends are invited to call at the Hallett Funeral Home, 273 Station Avenue, South Yarmouth, from 4 to 7 on Thursday, this Thursday, August 3rd, 2023. A funeral mass will be celebrated this Friday, August 4th, 2023, at 11 a.m. at St. Pius X Church, Station Avenue, South Yarmouth, interment in Saratoga Springs, New York, at a later date. Those wishing to make a donation in Noel's memory may do so at the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund, P.O. Box 36, INS Mass, 02601. Robert W. Waugh, Harwichport. Robert W. Waugh, a 95, passed away peacefully on July 29th in Harwich, Mass. Bob was born in Boston on April 12th, 1928, and spent his early years in Andover, Mass. He graduated from Governor Dummer Academy in 1946 and received his bachelor degree in economics from Bowdoin College. He went on to receive his master's degree in textiles from the University of Massachusetts Lowell. In the mid-50s, Bob was a lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force Air Material Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. On leaving the Air Force, he became a technical service representative for the Textile Fiber Fibers Department of the E.I. DuPont Demur in Wilmington, Delaware. He joined the Huck Felt Company in Rensselaer, New York in 1962, where he ma was manager of the technical services group and product manager supplying felts to the paper industry. Bob and his wife, Debbie, lived in Del Mar, New York, and then retired to live full-time on Cape. He attended St. Christopher's Church in Chatham, Mass., and was a member of the Allen Harbor Yacht. Bob is survived by his wife, Deborah Potter Waugh, who he married in 1954, his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and many friends who will greatly miss him. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, August 5th, that's this Saturday, at St. Christopher's Church in Chatham. Memorial donations may be made to the Shriners Hospital for Children, 51 Blossom Street, Boston, Mass., 02114. Timothy John Downey, Provincetown. Timothy J. Downey, 65, of Provincetown, passed away on Wednesday, July 19th at home. He was born February 15, 1958. He attended Provincetown High School and obtained a bachelor's degree from Boston College. Always an entrepreneur, Tim was involved in a number of enterprises, including co-funding land squares. He was active in community affairs as a Lions Club member and as a member of the Provincetown Recreation Commission. He will be sadly missed by many family members. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made in Tim's memory to the Provincetown Recreation Gift Fund, Provincetown Recreation Department, to Mayflower Street, Provincetown, Mass., 02657. A memorial service will be held at the convenience of the family. We'd like to thank the veterans for their service, and this concludes the obituaries at this time. Now, Nash, from Eric Tucker, the Associated Press. Trump charges keep growing. Justice Department indicts former president over efforts to overturn election, block transfer of power. Washington. Donald Trump was indicted on felony charges Tuesday for working to overturn the results of the 2020 election in the run-up to the violent riot by his supporters at the U.S. Capitol, with the Justice Department acting to hold him accountable for an unprecedented effort to block the peaceful transfer of presidential power and threaten American democracy. The four-count indictment, the third criminal case against Trump, provided deeper insight into a dark moment that has already been the subject of exhaustive federal investigations and captivating public hearings.
It chronicles a months-long months campaign of lies about the election results and says that even when those falsehoods resulted in a chaotic insurrection at the Capitol, Trump sought to exploit the violence by pointing to it as a reason to further delay the counting of votes that sealed his defeat. Even in a year of rapid succession legal reckonings for Trump, Tuesday's criminal case with charges including conspiring to defraud the United States government that he once led was stunning in its allegations that a former president assaulted the bedrock function of democracy. It's the first time the defeated president, who is the early frontrunner for the next year's Republican presidential nomination, is facing legal consequences for his frantic but ultimately failed effort to cling to power. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy, said Justice Department Special Counsel Jack Smith, whose office has spent months investigating Trump. It was fueled by lies, lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the United States government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. The Trump campaign called the charges fake and asked why it took two and a half years to bring Trump was the only person charged in Tuesday's indictment, but prosecutors obliquely referenced a half-dozen co-conspirators, including lawyers inside and outside of the government, who they said had worked with Trump to undo the election results. They also advanced legally dubless schemes to enlist slates of fake electors in seven battleground states won by Democrat Joe Biden to falsely claim that Trump had actually won. The indictment accuses the defeated president and his allies of trying to exploit the violence and chaos by calling lawmakers into the evening on January 6th to delay the certification of Biden's victory. It also cites handwritten notes from former Vice President Mike Pence that gives gravitas to Trump's relentless goading to reject the electoral votes. Pence, who is challenging Trump for the GOP presidential nomination, declined overtures from a House panel that investigated the insurrection and sought to avoid testifying before the special counsel. He appeared only after losing a court fight, with prosecutors learning that Trump in one conversation called him too honest to stop the certification. The case is already being dismissed by the former president and his supporters, and even some of his rivals, as just another politically motivated prosecution. Yet the case stems from one of the most serious threats to American democracy in modern history. The indictment centers on the turbulent two months after the November 2020 election in which Trump refused to accept his loss and spread lies that victory was stolen from him. The turmoil resulted in the riot at the Capitol when Trump loyalists violently broke into the building, attacked police officers, and disrupted the congressional counting of electoral. In between the election and the riot, Trump urged local election officials to undo voting results in their states, pressured Pence to halt the certification of electoral votes, and falsely claimed that the election had been stolen, a notion repeatedly rejected by judges. Among those lies, prosecutors say were claims more than... 10,000 dead voters had voted in Georgia, along with tens of thousands of double votes in Nevada. Each claim had been rebutted, rebutted by courts or state or federal officials, the indictment. Prosecutors say Trump knew his claims of having won the election were false, but he repeated and widely disseminated them anyway to make his knowingly false claims appear legitimate, to create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger, and to erode public faith in the administration of the election. The indictment had been expected since Trump said in mid-July that the Justice Department had informed him he was the target of its investigation. A bipartisan House committee that spent months investigating the run-up to the Capitol riot also recommended prosecuting Trump on charges, including aiding an insurrection and obstructing an official
The indictment includes charges of conspiring to defraud the U.S., conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding, and violating a post-Civil War Reconstruction-era civil rights statute that makes it a crime to conspire to violate rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution, in this case, the right to vote. The mounting criminal cases against Trump are unfolding in the heat of the 2024 race. A conviction in this case or any other would not prevent Trump from pursuing the White House or serving as president, though Trump as president could theoretically appoint an attorney general to dismiss the charges or potentially try to pardon himself. In New York, state prosecutors have charged Trump with falsifying business records about a hush money payoff to a porn actor before the 2016 election. That trial begins in late March. In Florida, the Justice Department has brought more than three dozen felony counts accusing him of illegally possessing classified documents after leaving the White House and concealing them from investigators. That trial begins in May. Prosecutors in Georgia are investigating efforts by Trump and his allies to reverse his election loss to Biden there. The district attorney of Fulton County is expected to announce charging decisions within as part of his federal investigation, Smith's team cast a broad net with his team of prosecutors questioning senior Trump administration officials, including Pence, before a grand jury in Washington. Prosecutors also interviewed election officials in Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and other battleground states won by Biden who were pressured by the Trump team to change voting results. Attorney General Merrick Garland last year appointed Smith, an international war crimes prosecutor who also led the Justice Department's public correction, corruption section, as special counsel to investigate efforts to undo the election as well as Trump's retention of classified documents at his Florida home, Mar-a-Lago. Although Trump has derided him as deranged and called him politically motivated, Smith's past experience includes overseeing significant prosecutions against high-profile Democrats. The Justice Department's investigations began well before Smith's appointment, proceeding alongside separate criminal probes into the rioters themselves. More than 1,000 people have been charged in connection with the insurrection, including some with seditious conspiracy. And from Ken Tran of the USA Today, Trump threatens House GOP lawmakers, says to impeach Biden or risk losing their jobs. Washington. House Republicans have been talking a lot about impeaching President Joe Biden over what they say is his improper involvement in his family's business dealings. But with a long to-do list when lawmakers return to Washington after August recess, for now it's all talk. Former President Donald Trump, however, is pressuring GOP lawmakers to put action behind their words and begin the impeachment process against Biden or face electoral consequences. Any Republican that doesn't act on Democratic fraud should be immediately primaried and get out, Trump told supporters at a campaign rally Saturday in Erie, Pennsylvania. We got a lot of good, tough Republicans around. People are going to run against them and people are going to win. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican California, has dismissed the notion that he is facing pressure from the former president to go after Biden, calling an impeachment inquiry an, imp an appropriate course of action. If the Biden administration does not provide the information we need, then we would go to an impeachment inquiry, McCarthy said at a news conference last week, referencing House Republicans' various investigations into whether Biden benefited from Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. McCarthy and other GOP lawmakers are finding themselves in a political bind over Trump's comments. House Republicans have roughly three weeks when they come back to Washington in September to approve must-pass spending bills, and an impeachment inquiry could take up valuable time needed to avoid a government shutdown. There are also multiple House Republicans representing districts Biden won in the 2020 presidential election. 
proceeding with an impeachment inquiry could put those vulnerable lawmakers in a politically fraught position heading into the 2024 election, something House GOP leaders want to avoid, considering their razor-thin five-seat majority. Representative Nancy Mace, Republican South Carolina, warned that impeachment could force vulnerable members to walk. Every time we walk the plank, we are putting moderate members, members that won Biden districts, we are putting those seats at risk for 2024. We are putting the majority at risk, May said on Fox News Sunday. Trump's attempts to pressure House Republicans to impeach Biden comes as he faces a multitude of legal troubles, including a possible indictment for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. In the face of those legal woes, Trump has accused Biden and the Department of Justice of targeting him because he is the front-runner in the 2024 Republican presidential trial. As a result, Trump has implored GOP lawmakers to fight back on his behalf. They impeach me, they indict me, Trump said at his rally in Erie, and the Republicans just don't fight the way they're supposed to fight. Republican leaders also face pressure from their right flank in the conference as members of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus called for impeaching Biden. I don't know how anyone, any objective, reasonable person, couldn't come to the conclusion that this appears to be impeachment-worthy, Representative Bob Good, Republican Virginia, a member of the Freedom Caucus, said last week, reiterating unstantiated claims that Biden was involved as vice president in his son's business. Stuck between the former president's warning and the upcoming 2020 24 elections, GOP lawmakers are struggling between continuing to investigate Biden or swiftly moving to impeach the president. We're working through the process, our constitutional duty to have oversight over the executive branch, Representative Kevin Hearn, Republican Oklahoma, chair of the Republican Study Committee, told reporters last week. Hearn said Republicans are thoroughly investigating whether the president had connections to Hunter Biden's business dealings and said Democrats jumped to conclusions when they impeached The Speaker has said that there may be an impeachment inquiry. That is not impeachment. That is Congress continuing its responsibilities to look into the issues that have been raised, said Representative Mike Lawler, Republican New York, who represents a district Biden won in 2020. It's just an ability to get more information, House Majority Leader Stephen Scalise, Republican Louisiana, said at a news conference last week, and an inquiry is not in of itself an impeachment. As a reminder, this is the Cape Cod Times, Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023 edition. Disney World District Ends Diversity and Equity Plans. New Administrator Calls Initiatives Un-American by Mike Schneider, the Associated Press. Orlando, Florida. Diversity, equity, and inclusion programs were abolished Tuesday from Walt Disney World's governing district, now controlled by appointees of Governor Ron DeSantis, in an echo of the Florida governor's agenda, which has championed curtailing such programs in higher education and The Central Florida Tourism Oversight District said in a statement that its diversity, equity, and inclusion committee would be eliminated, as would any job duties connected to it. Also asked were initiatives left over from when the district was controlled by Disney supporters, which awarded contracts based on goals of achieving racial or gender parity. Glenton Glilzean, the district's new administrator, who is African-American and a former head of the Central Florida Urban League, called such initiatives illegal and simply un-American. Glilzean has been a fellow or member at two conservative institutions, the James Madison Institute and the American Enterprise Institute Leadership Network, as well as a DeSantis appointee to the Florida Commission on 
Our district will no longer participate in any attempt to divide us by race or advance the notion that we are not created equal, Gilzian said in a statement. As the former head of the Central Florida Urgent League, a civil rights organization, I can say definitely that our community thrives only when we work together despite our differences. Last spring, DeSantis, who is running for the GOP presidential nomination, signed into law a measure that blocks public colleges from using federal or state funding on diversity DeSantis also championed Florida's so-called Stop Woke Law, which bars businesses, colleges, and K-12 schools from giving training on certain racial concepts, such as the theory that people of a particular race are inherently racist, prejudiced, or oppressed. A federal judge last November blocked the law's enforcement in colleges, universities, and businesses, calling it positively dystopian. The creation of the district, then known as the Reedy Creek Improvement District, was instrumental in Disney's decision to build a theme park resort near Orlando in the 1960s. Having a separate government allowed the company to provide zoning, fire protection, utilities, and infra services on the sprawling property. The district was controlled by Disney supporters for more than five Richard Fogelsong, a Rollins College professor emeritus, said he was surprised that the matter was decided internally rather than by a public vote of the five members supported by DeSantis to the district's board who have promised repeatedly to be more transparent than their predecessors. This is an issue of public importance, said Fogelsong, who wrote a definitive account of Disney World's governance in his book Married to the Mouse while Disney World in Orlando. The DeSantis appointees took control of the renamed district earlier this year following a year-long feud between the company and DeSantis. The fight began last year after Disney publicly opposed a state law banning classroom lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity in early grades, a policy critics call Don't Say Gay. Our next story by Andre Sims. These are the cake leave players you need to see in the playoffs. The 2023 Cape Cod Baseball League regular season is coming to an end this week. The playoffs are set to begin Friday with all the teams set. Here are some of the premier names to watch. The list features players from Blue Blood College baseball programs and schools you may not heard of. But rest assured, these players have proven themselves among the best of the best this summer and will be looking to continue that into the postseason. Here are 24 players to keep a close eye on this postseason. West Division, Katuit Ketelier's Cole Mathis College of Charleston. Mathis has a strong case for the Cape League MVP award. Mathis has only gotten better as the summer has gone on and now is helping anchor the top-seeded Ketelier's offense into the postseason. Mathis is currently slashing 333, 388, and 699 and only has one hitless game since July 13th. Mathis leads the league in RBIs at 42 and is second in the league in home runs with 11. Mathis has been on a heater as of late. Since the All-Star game, he's gone 1,336, that's 361, with four home runs and 14 RBIs. Mathis has also seen time on the hill for the Kettleers this season. Cameron Hill, Georgia Tech. Cameron Hill has had no shortage of success this year and could be the Kettleers' second consecutive winner of the Russ Ford Outstanding Relief Pitcher Award. Teammate Cam Schulke took home the honor for the 2022 season. Hill has led the Cape League in strikeouts through most of the season. He currently has 45, and his ERA sits at a league-leading 1.09. His record is a perfect 3-0, and he even picked up the win for the West in the All-Star game. Sean Keyes, Bucknell. Keyes has done nothing but rake since he arrived on Cape. The Bucknell product is hitting 419, 1331, 
and has already hit three home runs, three doubles, and driven in 15 runs in just eight games since being activated on July 23rd. He's reached base in every single game and drove in a run in each of his first six games to start his Hyannis Harbor Hawks, Cam Smith, Florida State. Simply put, Smith has been the Harbor Hawks' best hitting this summer and has emerged as one of the best hitters in the league. Smith's 56 hits leads the league, as does his 36 runs scored. He's hitting 352, which is tied for the fourth best across the Cape. The Florida State product also leads the Harbor Hawks in doubles with 12, home runs with 6, RBIs 25, and 4 triples. He's played every game this season and is also just one error at 30. Brody Donay, Florida. Don't let the 233 average fool you. Donay has been a threat for the 2023 Harbor Hawks all summer long. His four home runs and 11 doubles are scored on the are second only on the team to Smith, and his 19 RBIs are tied for second on the team. Two thirds of Donay's hits this season have gone for extra. Jonathan John John Gadzar, Austin Prey. They say correlation doesn't equal causation, but it's hard to ignore the relationship between Gadstar's arrival with the Harbor Hawks and their late-season surge. Hyannis went 16-7 and in the month of July, and Gadstar debuted on July 5th. Since then, he slashed 338, 403, and 400. He has two doubles, a triple, and 10 RBIs so far this summer, and has scored 14 runs in 17. Falmouth Commodores, Travit Bazana, Oregon State. Bazana also has a case for Cape League MVP this year. Bazana has had some monster individual games this season, including a 6-for-7, 2-home run, 2-double, 8-RBI, 6-run scored performance in the Commodores' 27-2 route of the Tuit Ketteliers on July 28th. Bazana is tied for the league, league with a 380 average and leads the Commodores in both home runs, 6, and RBIs, 31. Throw in an additional 14 steals, and you have one of the most complete seasons. Braden Davis, Sam Houston State. Davis has been a great arm for the Com Commodores this season. He is tied for fifth in the league with 37 strikeouts in just 26.1 innings, and his 2.73 ERA is good for sixth in the league. Davis is coming off his best start of the season. He went five innings, only allowed a run, and struck out seven in the 27-2 win over Katuit. Taylor McGregor, Northeastern. McGregor has done a little bit of everything this summer for the Commodores. The senior is batting 310 on the season and is second on the team in both hits, 31 and 21 RBIs. McGregor is nothing player enjoying best stretch of the summer as the season closes. In his last four games, he's gone 11 and 20 with nine RBIs. Born Braves, Derek Bender, Coastal Carolina. Derek Bender has been electric for the Braves this season offensively. He's tied with Bazana for the league's highest batting average, 380, and paces the Braves with his four home runs and 21 RBIs. Bender was the MVP of the All-Star Game this summer for the West Division and also has stolen 18 bags. Bryce Iblin, Alabama. Iblin is one of the few returning players from last year's Cape Cod Baseball League championship winning team. This season, he's put that experience to good use. Iblin is riding a seven-game hitting streak since the All-Star game, including four three-hit games. In that stretch, he's raised his average from 305 to 363, which now has him sitting fourth in the league. Tristan Smith, Clemson. Smith has emerged as one of the Braves' most consistent arms this season. The lefty from Clemson has an ERA of 156 this season and leads the Braves in wins with three and strikeouts 33. Primarily operating as a starter this summer, Smith has struck out 33 in just 23 innings and has only allowed 10 hits all year and no more than three in any. East Division, Yarmouth, Dennis, Red Sox, Hunter Hines, Mississippi State. 
The home run title this season has run through Red Wilson Field by way of Starkville, Mississippi. Hines has led the league in home runs for most of the season and is currently holding off the surging bat of Cole Mathis for the title. His 41 RBIs are second in the league behind Mathis, and he has driven in nearly 20% of the Red Sox total runs this season. Hines is hitting 255 this season, but has been walked 20 times and has an OPS of 895. Smith Pinson, Kennesaw State. Pinson announced himself to the league earlier this season by winning Cape Cod Baseball League Pitcher of the Week in early July. The acknowledgement came after a scoreless six-inning start against the Bourne Braves. Pinson currently sits fifth in the league in strikeouts with 37 and has a 2.68 ERA, which is also fifth. He only given up 11 earned runs in seven starts. Finnegan Wall, UC Irvine. Wall is another arm that has helped the Red Sox boast one of the best and deepest pitching staffs in the league this season. The junior has 38 strikeouts and 34 innings across seven starts. He's won two games this summer and has an ERA of 291, and the opponents are only hitting 194. Orleans Firebirds, Joe Oyama, UC Irvine. Joe Oyama has been one of the most dynamic players this season for the Firebirds. He claimed the East Division MVP at the All-Star Game and has quietly put up one of the best all-around seasons in the league. He's hitting 364, which is third in the Cape League, leads the league in triples with six, and hits five home runs. Oyama is second only to Hyannis's Cam Smith with his 51 hits this year, has driven in 17, and scored 32 runs. Derek Clark, Northwood University. Clark has put together a really strong season for Orleans. He's thrown two seven-inning starts, has struck out 38 hitters, good for second in the league, and has amassed five wins, which is also second in the league. His ERA sits at 1.8, third in the league, across a Cape League high 40 innings of work. Sean Matson, Harvard. Matson established himself as one of the premier high-leverage arms in the league this summer. The Harvard product has yet to give up an earned run in 16 appearances out of the bullpen and has struck out 26 and 21.2 innings pitched. He's totaled five saves this summer and also has a league-high six. Harwich Mariners' Daniel O.B. Duke. O.B. has gone under the radar this season with five home runs and 21 RBIs. He's shown what kind of offense he's capable of producing. Those totals both lead the Mariners this season, and he's also hit four doubles. Kevin Kieser, Maryland. Kieser has been a shot in the arm for the Mariners' offense since his arrival. In just six games, he's hitting nearly 500, 11 for 23 at 478, and has already scored six times. He's also already chipped in with seven RBIs and will be looking to continue to boost his team in the post. Sean Hard, Boston College. Hard has arguably been the Mariners' best reliever this season. He leads Harwish in strikeouts with 31 and has a 2.34 ERA. He's given up only six earned runs in 23 innings this summer, half of which came in one outing. Opponents are only hitting 188 off him in his eight appearances. Brewster Whitecaps, James Tipp, Florida State. This summer, Tibbs has shown he can hang the best when it comes to power hitters in the league. He leads his team in home runs with six RBIs with 21 and has six doubles. Tibbs claimed the home run derby crown at this summer's All-Star game, hitting 12 across the two rounds. However, he's not a one-trick pony and can hit for average as well, slashing 303, 393, and 475. Patrick Forbes, Louisville. Forbes has flexed some two-way muscles for the Whitecaps this year. On the mound, he's been one of Brewster's top arms. The sophomore rightly has only given up four earned runs all summer across his seven appearances and has an ERA of 220. His performances on the mound earned him a nod 
to the All-Star Game. He has one save, one win, and has struck out 18 in 16.1 innings. At the plate, he's also hit two home runs and is hitting 256, which is exactly 60 points higher than opponents are hitting off him on them. And Davis Diaz, Vanderbilt. Diaz is second-year white cap and is hitting his stride at the perfect time. He's recorded six hits, two home runs, and six RBIs over his last three games. His 15 RBIs has tied him for second on the team, as do his three home runs, and his hitting 286. And that brings us to the end of our reading today of the Cape Cod Times for August 2nd, 2023. Thank you for listening.